This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 240. Today we speak about Van Til's important essay, Nature and Scripture, with Dr. K. Scott Oliphant. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, your weekly conversation of Reformed theology. This is episode number 240. My name is Camden Busey. I'm here on the campus of Westminster Theological Seminary for our last in-studio with a guest uh, recording before Command Central moves to uh, Wheaton, Illinois, at least for a year. Uh, So let me introduce to you our panel. We're very excited today to have with us Jared Oliphant, who is Regional Coordinator for Westminster Theological Seminary. He's working out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Welcome back, Jared. It's great to have you. Good to be here, Camden. I remember when we painted this place, so it's a little bittersweet today. It is. I and uh, I uh, I remember when we painted it too, and I I remember every time I look at the walls and see what a terrible job we did. <laughs> uh, <laughs> All the yellow that's still more peeking bitter through because yeah. we did it as fast well, as possible. Much better than when we found it. I'll put yeah, it that that's true. Yeah, uh, and uh, everyone on video is looking at us, looking off camera, yeah. just yeah. staring around. Um, we're also very excited to welcome back to the program again. Uh, Dr. Scott Oliphant, who is Professor of Apologetics and Systematic Theology here at Westminster Theological Seminary. Welcome back. It's great to have you. Thanks, Camden. Good to be here. Yeah, well, today we are, I couldn't have anybody else uh, to talk uh, about this topic that would be more appropriate, so we're really excited to open up. Well, let, me, uh, let, me just, old... let me just clarify that. Mm-hmm. What it means is Tipton and Truman are out of town, no. so that's why Oliphant's here. <laughs> you Happy really to think be here. when I announce this topic, I, I don't think anyone will deny that, no, that, no, that you're more. I'm only certainly completely. Carl just. Truman on, on this topic is just not going to work. That's another episode. Um, that uh, is no, that would work. One for another discussion. Today we're going to be speaking about a fantastic essay by Cornelius Van Til in the book. The Infallible Word. This uh, essay is titled Nature and Scripture. I'm holding here an old second edition copy from the library. There's a newer paperback version uh, that you can buy from WTSbooks.com. Jared has some information about some things on their website we can mention here in a minute. Uh, But this was a faculty symposium. uh, A collection of, of essays written on the doctrine of Scripture and Revelation kind of in general there. Um written by the faculty members here at Westminster Theological Seminary, I believe in 1948, maybe a few years earlier. 46 is copyright, yeah. There we go. And uh, some contributions here. Yep, 46, of course, uh, by John Murray, E.J. Young, Ned Stonehouse, John Skilton, Paul Woolley, R.B. Kuyper, and Cornelius Van Til. Um, Uh, I'll just interrupt you every now and then. But just to say... um, this began as a kind of uh, tribute to the 400th anniversary of the writing of the Confession, mm-hmm. 1643. So they, they began it in, in 1943, and then it, was actually, it actually went to print in 46. So, so the idea is not an exposition of the Confession, but based on the Confession now, how do we understand uh, the Bible? Oh, that's fascinating. It's a it's a classic. Um, I remember reading it when it was on the Westminster Seminary pre seminary reading list. You still have it on the list? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've yeah. updated that a, a little bit since then, but yeah. Right, and it's just uh, it was really helpful for me at the time, um, having kind of a nascent uh, 
Reformed theology, but to come and and read about these men talking about different issues in the doctrine of Scripture and, and Revelation um, is fantastic to read and to shore up some of those basic um basic categories before you move on to some other things. Uh, and, and I was just struck reading last night uh, E.J. Young's piece on the Old Testament and uh, Van Til's piece here on nature and scripture, how applicable they are today, uh, maybe even more so than they were 50 years ago. Uh, before we dive down into this uh, discussion, though, I do need to mention that Christ the Center is listener-supported. Uh, we rely on the generous support of all of our listeners and viewers uh, to help us to continue to produce and distribute all of our programs free of charge. Uh, we are in a time of transition, uh, moving out to the Midwest, at least while I do an internship at Bethel OPC there in Wheaton. And so we can really use your support now more than ever, especially uh, the summer months are really slow and whatnot. So visit us online at reformedforum.org slash donate. It's very simple. Uh, and if you would, uh, just click and there. We have different giving levels that are extremely helpful for us just to maintain uh, our budget, to help us meet our expenses, to pay our bills and uh, distribute all these programs for free. Uh, we, we really enjoy doing it. And we like the fact that it's accessible to anybody who can get to a computer or get to somebody who has a computer hooked up to the Internet. Uh, so visit us online at reformedforum.org slash donate. We thank you so much for your support of everything we do here at Reformed Forum. And this particular program, Christ the Center. Can I, can yeah. I interrupt you again? Please. <laughs> I just want to say, since this is your last um, program from the campus, just want to commend you for what you've done in this ministry. I think it's been an invaluable resource um, all over the world, really. I think I told you when I was in, in Jakarta, uh, Indonesia, in January, uh, over the weekend between teaching, um, had the opportunity to sit out on, on a balcony and, and listen to an, an hour of uh, one of your programs. And uh, I know that's what many people do across the world. And, and your, your presence on campus has been invaluable. We're sorry to see you go. Um, I'm glad you're going where you're going because you're going with a great and godly group of people, but um, I appreciate your, your ministry here, and not, not only that, but your, uh, your presence here as a, as a doctoral student. So, and if you edit any of this out, you will never get out of the doctoral <laughs> program. So I, I just want to... Um, you are on my field committee. I got, a, I got an issue. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. And of course, you know, what we do here is a, a team effort, and it, and it wouldn't be anything without the board, uh, Doug Clawson, Ed Tress, uh, Jim Cassidy and Jeff Waddington and our regular contributors. Jared's one of them. We have a bunch of them. And, of course, all of our guests. I mean, we we just like to organize people and get other people to talk. So thank you, uh, you too, as well, uh, Dr. Alfin, for coming on the program. And thanks for all the supporters. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's just wonderful to be able to do what we do. And this isn't going to change uh, materially. I mean, we won't be here. Uh, physically for a time. Maybe we'll be back someday or who knows how things will, will turn out. But, um, you know, we continue to want to discuss with the Westminster professors as well as professors from other seminaries. So the magic of uh, technology, I think we'll be able to do that, although um, things will be different, but not, not, it's not a goodbye per se, I don't think. So uh, I thought it would be appropriate today um, with this last in studio, you know, with a guest, uh, uh, discussion to to bring up nature and scripture. We haven't spoken about it before, not to my knowledge. Um, 
I think it's appropriate to talk about Dr. Van Til, and there's so many things going on now nowadays with the doctrine of revelation uh, that it's important for us to understand how general revelation and special revelation relate to one another. Uh, I've been uh, interested to see, uh, maybe I should say concerned to see, you know, sort of this resurgence, if not explicit, but at least a, a veiled resurgence of. Uh, what seems to many to be kind of reminiscent of uh, Thomistic nature-grace dualism. And so we want to speak today about how nature and Scripture relate to one another, uh, what are the features of God's revelation in in the ways that he has revealed himself, and uh, how we go about uh, thinking theologically and how we actually should should undertake our methodology, how we should approach uh, the very studies that we do and what's appropriate given what God has said about himself. So um, maybe I'll let you, Dr. Oliphant, open things up, just explain a little bit more about this book and your experience. Maybe, maybe if you have any anecdotes. I'm, I i don't know of any, so maybe I'm uh, priming yeah. the pump Can here, I interrupt but... for a second? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just for the, the listeners, this if you don't have a copy, there's a free PDF. Oh, yes. if, if you just search yes. on WTSbooks.com, they have like a, a preview PDF. Um, so that's available if you want to follow along. Of um, the chapter. Yeah, 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 of the chapter, sorry. Mm. Good. Sorry, go ahead. Continue. Yeah, um, <laughs> I I don't have any real anecdotal um, things to offer to you. Is here, your book signed? Your book is whose copy is actually? This, this is Doctor <laughs> Knudsen's copy. Um, my, my predecessor in apologetics. It's in very yeah. good shape. So first, um, <laughs> anyway, uh, I, you know, um, I think I'm right here that that Murray's uh, Murray's chapter I don't think is in his uh, collected writings anywhere. And I, I would just uh, I would commend it to to your readers um, to your listeners mm-hmm. to read because it um, the, the the exact same things that we're discussing today mm-hmm. is what Murray is discussing in the early 1940s, um, and I, I don't think you're going to find, with the possible exception of a couple of Warfield, I don't think you're going to find anything better and as accessible. As what Murray does here. So, can I just give you one example? Yeah, here? the title here: the attestation of the scripture. attestation yeah. of, of Scripture, and mm-hmm. he's talking about it being self-attesting, etc. Mm-hmm. But here he gets into the the discussion of uh, what about the fact that people, that men wrote Scripture, and he's dealing here with a man by the name of John Monroe Gibson, and um, he says uh, uh, people like Gibson have too rashly come to the conclusion that the human factor or as we should prefer to call it, human instrumentality, settles this question, and that the Bible, though God's Word, must at the same time be errant and fallible, at least in scientific and historical detail, simply because it came to us through the ministry of men. Now, now Murray goes on to talk about how irrational that is based on Scripture itself, based on uh, what, what Scripture says exegetically, how we understand Scripture for, as a foundational um, epistemological um, principium, and and he, I think he fleshes out well the uh, the. This may be too strong, but the irrationality of people who want to. Well, no, it's not too strong. The irrationality of people who want to hold to a so-called um, uh, spiritual truths in Scripture, but negate so-called historical and scientific. And and Murray says, you know, that's not an option. Once you pronounce on the Bible from externally uh, to to the Bible itself that anything is fallible, 
at that point, what you say is infallible is simply a matter of mere opinion. And it just does a, he does a masterful job of showing that. So I, I would commend that essay. Again, I don't think it's in his collected works. I could be wrong there, but um, it's, it's a fairly long essay, but not as technical as Murray can sometimes be. And, and I think laid out just um, exceptionally well, e- even dealing with, with Bardian um, issues uh, in Revelation where where Bart, uh, Bardians want to hang on Confession 1-5, and, and Murray says you can't have 1-5 without going to 1-4. 1-4 speaks for the authority of Scripture. 1-5, the evidences that show that authority. If you go to 5 without 4, it's not an authority issue anymore, and now we're into the subjective, and that's, and that's the Bardian problem. But there's much more to say, but, but Murray was just, um, I think he was at his best when he, when he was writing this, and, and, and if people who have doubts about the Bible based on what um, scholars are saying out there uh, can get a hold of this and and uh, uh, linger over it for a while. I think those doubts will diminish significantly. Murray's just an uh, um, excellent resource on this. Mm-hmm. I should also, you know, I already mentioned, but I should remind people of E.J. Young's piece. E.J. Young uh, taught Old Testament here, Dr. Gaffin's father-in-law. And uh, he uh, he also has a, a fantastic book that that echoes many of the same things. His book is called "Thy Word Is Truth." So yeah. it's another book people should pick up and read if they want to shore up their doctrine of scripture. Yeah, let me, let me just say something again, kind of more more globally here that's come to my attention um, recently. I think in our tradition, it's it's important uh, again to reiterate uh, what the confession is. Uh, in 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 our in our um, context, n- nobody holds these men as they write, sort of thinking about the confession. Nobody holds the confession to be infallible. And, and in the Presbyterian tradition, we know that the, those of us ordained, when you come before your presbytery for ordination, you can declare exceptions, and then the presbytery can determine whether those exceptions are legitimate or not. And you're ordained on the basis of that. So embedded in your commitment to the confession is also a commitment that it has to be true to Scripture. If it's not, we make that known. And and I think um, in our kind of, how do I say this, um, sort of superficial way of understanding that um, pe- people want to say that if you're confessional, you've set the Bible aside. And, and that has never been the way that uh, any of us have thought about the confession, we hold it in high regard because it is so true to Scripture, not because it is supplemental, but because it exposits in a concise way much of what Scripture teaches. Not everything, of course. So, you know, I think when, you know, when, when people want to say, you know, let's just, let's go to the Bible and leave the confession aside, that's, that's rightly foreign to the way that we think. It's foreign because in order for us to be unified in what we're saying together, we need to confess, we need to say together, this is what uh, Scripture teaches on these particular matters. And that's what's happening in this book, and that's, that's what's happening now uh, in our context, uh, so that when, when I'm thinking about the authority of Scripture, I will, ne- I will never think about that outside of Westminster Confession 1, not because Confession 1 is infallible, but because there's a reason why these brilliant minds in the 17th century took five years to, to, to eke this out. It's because they've gone through the exegesis, mm-hmm. and they understand it in that context. So um, to dismiss the confession, I think, is at minimum dangerous. And, and also, just on the flip side, because we're going to get into some of these, uh, these features of authority here as we talk about Dr. Van Til's approach, on the flip side, the, this, that's a very different approach than a, than a magisterial Roman Catholic-type view of church 
history or tradition. Yeah, um, we're not we're not just arbitrarily choosing 17th century uh, reformers over you know a series of popes and and magisterial you know bishops and cardinals. It's not just a pick your group and then they're your your men. Right. It's the fact uh, that scripture is always self-attesting. It's it's uh, authoritative on its own right and it speaks to us. And we have found uh, in our judgment, we see the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms as rightly representing that system of truth, which is taught and contained in Scripture. So, uh, just to reiterate, I mean that's nothing new to anybody here, but but uh, and probably not to most of our listeners. But I'm sure there'll be a few out there, yeah. um, especially with recent apostasies and people flipping over to Rome. The, yeah. the authority question is is back on the on the table again. That's right, and and, and I would say back to Murray that. Um, that, that the logic runs this way. If Scripture is not self-attesting, mm-hmm. you ought to be a Romanist. Yeah. Those are your only options, really. If Scripture does not attest to its own authority, that's what Confession 1-4 is saying. If Scripture doesn't do it, then you better go to a church that you're going to trust to tell you what the Bible is and how it's to be believed and what the canon is and all those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Now the authority of the Bible is a derived authority. Any other authority... And self-attestation is a derived authority. And I think that's one of the reasons why some in evangelical circles aren't sure where they fit, because self-attestation is a, is a specifically Reformed mm-hmm. doctrine that uh, I think has to be reiterated again and again and again. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's, that's an important point with uh, methodology, too, uh, because just using—what we mean by confessional is consistent with the confession. We don't mean just using the confession or quoting the confession. In the same way that we don't mean by biblical just throwing out a Bible verse or just quoting the Bible. Mm-hmm. You know, if that, was, if that was the case, Satan would be biblical because he's quoting you know, Scripture. <laughs> um, so it goes much more beyond that. It's consistency with the confession. It's consistency within Scripture, mm-hmm. for what it's worth. Now, when God speaks, he's, he has spoken, he has revealed himself in different ways, uh, you know, through the things that have been made, but he's also spoken specifically uh, in his word, uh, but he also spoke verbally uh, to Adam in the garden, and he's also revealed himself most preeminently uh, in his son, uh, Jesus Christ. That's always the one that trips people up during licensure exams. How has God revealed himself? And then they say general and special revelation. They go, is there any other way? (laughs) What about Jesus? (laughs) Yep, Jesus. You know, it's one of those. But um, yeah, it's it's interesting to think how how Christ relates to the categories of general and special revelation. He's kind of both. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He's he's the apex of both. Um, But um, so as we approach this subject, uh, what are some introductory things we need to maintain as we understand or at least attempt to get a grasp on the relationship of, of general and special revelation or as Van Til kind of uh, glosses nature and scripture. Yeah, good. I, I think um, um, just to say one more historical point in, mm-hmm. in, in introducing an answer to that question, what, what um, I, think, I think what Muller says is, is exactly right um, in, in volume one. Prolegomena. He says that the uh, that that the most important those are his words the most important contribution uh, to um, uh, to to the Reformation in in light of uh, medieval formulations was the epistemological contribution that includes with it um, essentially soteriology soteriological categories mm-hmm. and 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 Muller makes the point that in 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 medieval uh, discussions. As we all know, the fall was not seen to be as radical uh, 
Oh no, as it should have been seen, and so that there 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 was given this um, uh, autonomy, or at least a kind of independence of reason, uh, not affected uh, so specifically by sin. And then Muller goes on to say that that the reformers could not abide that because of their understanding of Scripture, and so. If, if he's right that the epistemological is the most important contribution of the early reformers, then I think we're, we're beginning to get a handle on what Sola Scriptura and, and Doctrine of God's Revelation has to mean for Reformed thought. It, it has a principial um, force to it, and by that I mean foundational behind which you cannot go, that you don't find in, in medieval theology. And, mm-hmm. and, and unless you stand there, this is part of Murray's point, what Van Til's going to get to, unless you stand there, you're standing on quicksand. You've got nowhere to stand. Um, so you're sinking by your own weight. And, and I think if we begin to see it that way, then, then now we can see Revelation as the place on which every Christian has to stand in order to posit anything. Mm-hmm. Now, now we're beginning to understand how to think about natural theology and, and all sorts of things. So if we think about it biblically, special revelation precedes and grounds natural revelation. That is, God speaks, and it was. So it's special revelation that even brings natural revelation into existence. And then once creation is there, and by virtue of creation, God's revealing himself dynamically in and through it. Once it's there, God then speaks and says, here is what man is to do in the garden. And, and that special and general, as, as Van Til says, those have to be supplementative. They're limiting concepts, which means you can't have one without the other. Right. If, you're ju- if you just have one and you lay the other aside and say, we don't need to get to that, mm-hmm. then you have misconstrued the one that you're trying to, to, to understand. They've got to be, it's got to be an ebb and flow sort of thing. Uh, but one, yeah. one, one and the other and the other. You know, you think of one, you go to the other, you think of the other, you go to one. And, and if, you, if you isolate those unduly, then uh, you've you've got you've got them wrong, and and historically we we can see both sides of this. You know, in a, in a kind of extreme biblicism, it would be Bible only, and so you're just uh, reading that and, and and nothing else, and there's nothing else out there, and it's only you know passages of scripture. You don't mm-hmm. see that as much. What you see normally is a kind of independence of natural revelation, so that. You know, natural revelation has gotten, um, I mean, it gets blamed for all sorts of things. Um, Well, you know, I'm an evolutionist because natural revelation. That's not what natural revelation is. Natural Mm -hmm. revelation is not equivalent to scientific data (laughs) by any any way, shape. But that's the way people use it. Well, I've let natural revelation modify my view especially that is not the it's way perspicuous it's, yeah well it's not the way <laughs> what that's does not it what reveal means but yeah yeah and it, it reminds me uh just your your comments about uh, the early reformers and their contributions just uh, uh calvin's first chapter in the institutes is just still remains to be a classic i was just down at the philadelphia museum of art yesterday and uh i was i you know every time i go there i like to go see the suits of armor and the swords and all this stuff and i'm looking at like 16th century weapons that were used during the time of the reformation and i'm thinking i read calvin and it speaks to me today is just totally fresh and uh wonderful and powerful and rich and even current especially in the epistemological stuff and then i look at these weapons and i said if i joined the army how satisfied would i be if this is this is what they handed me you You know oh boy well fortunately you know the weapons calvin is working with are much uh more significant can i get a rim shot for that one Um, no, be here but, all night, Candy. Yeah, you know uh, this is fantastic. Um, 
and also I really appreciate the fact that you mentioned the special revelation, God speaks, and then the general or the natural comes after that. But we also think about God's speech and just the the idea of a revelation. There needs to be some media for that. Otherwise, God's not revealing because he's speaking or doing or whatever he's whatever he's his action is his pure act within himself. It's not, yeah, it's not a revelation at all. So, so we do see the, um, the mutual, um, uh, the, the relationship between the two that they, they do depend on one another and that we can't unnecessarily split them, um, apart from each other to, to, to do some sort of methodological thing where we keep hermetically seal the general from the, special yeah. or anything like that. Right. Um, Van Til starts here on uh, section one uh, called The Natural Theology of the Confession. What is natural theology and uh, what's Van Til getting at? He's talking about really an appropriate view of natural theology. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. Let me let me say a couple things. Uh, again, more general um, related to your question. I think, the, sure. the, I think the first thing is, I think this is one of the maybe one of the best concise things Van Til's ever written, point one. Point two, uh, some things in Van Til are hard to understand. <laughs> um, and I, 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 don't, I don't think it's necessarily the most perspicuous thing because he's, he's, ra- he's wrapping up in, in short sections yeah. what is really uh, very deep and, and detailed um, philosophical theology. And so unless you're up to speed on some of that, categories are going to be a, a, a little obscure for some. Now, but, you, you've also argued for the consistency of Van Til's method, I think, a very convincing piece. But but I should mention, just for the sake of history, this, this is fairly early. I mean, he's yeah. written stuff on Bart, but and of course his dissertation. He hasn't he doesn't change his, his views of, of things throughout time, but at the same time, he hasn't written a whole lot, syllabi or even books, so, so there's not as much... Um, practice in terms of him articulating his views either so that that might might be at play here in yeah. this essay well i think you're exactly i don't think there's any question that, yeah. that that's in play here and and part of van Til's, um you know if i could put it this way part of his problem is that um he, he grasped things his teachers would recognize that he could grasp things almost intuitively that took other people mm-hmm you know, weeks to grasp if they ever did. And he was, you know, and Van Til wanted to be a pastor and people were encouraging him to move on in his studies. And because he was raised on a farm, he said, this didn't come easy to me because, you know, I, I wanted to be a pastor. And had wood shoes. Yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> Makes it difficult, yeah. Yeah. Footwear. I mean, he, t- he used to tell me, he'd tell me stories about him and his brother going around in Holland selling vegetables off the cart, you know, and, and um, <laughs> You know, and so he's. This is this is his life, and then he gets into the into his schooling, and things just come. He just had. So when he's writing, he thinks the rest of us are as bright as he was, and we're not. Mm. So it's it's just one of those things that he had to try to learn. And as as we know, he was frustrated that he couldn't be as clear as he wanted to be. Having said that, if you can wrestle with this chapter, you're going to get the crux of what Fantil is about. I mean, mm-hmm. if you can go from beginning to end and parse it out. Uh, not quickly, but um, uh, work through it. You're, you're, you're going to get the substance of what he has been doing previously, but before 1940s, and then what he does in the rest of his career as he develops mm-hmm. these things and applies them to modern theology and hermeneutics and apologetics and, and, and all sorts of things. But but the first thing I think it's important for us to see in what Van Til is doing here is that he is, he is working with this uh, category of revelation and theology 
at root, he's working at this covenantally. And, oh, and he's yeah. very clear about that yeah, uh, to the extent so. that he wants to say it again and again and mm-hmm. again and again. Now, why is that important? Because what Van Til recognized is, not, is, is nothing new to him, but it needed to be highlighted again. And that is that anything that God is doing is by definition covenantal with respect to creation. So that, it, so that in his revelation in creation and in his revelation in, in, in Scripture, both of those are covenantal mm-hmm. in that they place obligations on man, number one, and number two, they presuppose the presence of God in everything that's going on. So God is there, and God is speaking, and that obliges man, all of us as human beings, it, it, it obliges us uh, to, to God and to, to be obedient to him, to respond to him mm-hmm. in the proper way. And Van Til is framing all of his discussion of revelation and theology and everything else in that covenantal context. Anything that's not covenantal, this is a way to put it negatively, anything that's not covenantal is by definition, whether a person realizes it or not, is by definition autonomous. Mm. See, because covenantal means dependent upon God. God has initiated, God has established, God has commanded, and then we take our place. If, if it's not covenant, if there's something out here that's not covenantal, then God's not involved. God's yeah. not present. You know, it's right. it's neutral in that sense, and you're not accountable for it. So one of the first things he wants to do, even though, you know, you can see him here in the language, he's actually jumping to Confession 7-1 in order to articulate Confession 1, 4, and 5. Hmm. So he, he's actually moves to the covenantal categories in order to articulate what what natural theology and natural revelation is, and, and I think that has to be um, that has to be highlighted in, in, in what Van Til's doing. If you read the article, you'll see it. This is yeah, not something very, you right This is what he's saying. Yeah, in, in the beginning, whoever checked this seen. library book out highlighted that too. Did they? Yeah, <laughs> that was you. I saw. That. I'm sure it was you. <laughs> so the first thing he's doing is def- is he's, he's defining everything as covenantal. That is, we don't have anything. We are not. We are not anything apart from the covenant relationship that God has unilaterally established. Then, if we begin to um, think carefully about that, what Van Til wants to go go on to say is that natural theology is the working out of God's natural revelation according to the principles of special revelation. Mm, And he uses, uh, you know, different um, illustrations of the sun and the moon and all those sorts of things. But he says, you know, one of the pages, he says, when the sun of grace has arisen on the horizon of the center, the, quote, light of nature, phrase from the confession, shines only by reflected light. See? So it's the light of Scripture alone that can give you the true light of nature. Mm-hmm. You, you have to have the, the sun in order to have the light of the moon. That's the point he's made. And the sun is scripture and the light of the moon is natural revelation. Mm. Uh, so that in, in order to – the epistemological point is natural theology, if it's going to be a, a proper reformed natural theology, what, what the uh, scholastics call a theologia vera, a true theology, that theology has to have its ground in God's spoken word. And, and it's no a big point. That's, that's a massive. And it's idea. not simply. Um, well, this is this is a point taught very clearly in Calvin in terms of scriptures, the necessary spectacles to understand anything in the world. But, but also, I I think, uh, and Bill Dennison, I think would con- would concur, especially in his book. But I think Van Til is also going down a Vossian road to say that this is not simply a function of the fall either. Because even before the fall, one point that Voss wants to make, and, and, and Van Til does also, uh, 
is that uh, we needed the Lord to speak in order to say, do not eat from this tree, mm-hmm. or you can eat from any tree, and he also says, be fruitful, multiply, do these things. So the Lord is speaking even before Adam fell into sin. So it's a very important point to note about natural theology even before the fall yeah. is never supposed to be... Mm, engaged in apart from special revelation. Yeah, that's right. And before the fall, it wouldn't have been and couldn't have been. Mm-hmm. And then and then after the fall, you begin to see, as Van Til makes clear here. Yeah, nobody would have done it before the fall. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and But after the, after the fall, people begin to think, yeah. you know, I'm doing, doing pretty well on my own. Um, just, just another quote from, from Van Til here. He says, God's revelation in nature, together with God's revelation in Scripture, form God's one grand scheme of covenant revelation of himself to man. The two forms of revelation must therefore be seen as presupposing and supplementing one another. Yeah. Now, that's the way you've got to see it's it. It's 2.59. You know, one, mm-hmm. one entails the other. It's not that one implies the other. One entails the other. So that if you've got one, you necessarily have the other. Mm-hmm. That, that's the way it is once God determines to create. So that's the way you've got to begin to think about it as, as a coherent whole and not kind of two sides of, uh, or different ways of understanding God and the way that it's been formulated in, 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 um, in other parts of history that Van Til gets into here later on. It just goes back to, to emphasize just the, the thoroughly biblical um, worldview that he has and, and, the, and the deep structures of uh, a Reformed uh, theology proper that comes from Scripture. Just Van Til constantly not only emphasizes covenant, but of course covenant presupposes personal relationship. He's always, in his polemical context, very keen on emphasizing the personalistic context of everything and course related to revelation so it, it just goes to show i think for van till the uh, cohesiveness of his entire system of thought and how he just goes at all these different um specific aspects and just applies that westminsterian you know post-reformed or post-reformation reformed orthodoxy mm-hmm. to whatever he's working on yeah yeah mm-hmm. exactly right when when he's getting into um can i give another quote here because please there's a there's a place in here that's a bit um you know some people have, have struggled with when he's talking about a philosophy of history, then he goes on, he mm-hmm. says, being from the outset covenantal in character, the natural revelation of God to man was meant to serve, and here, here's a phrase that some people trip over, it was meant to serve as the playground for the process of differentiation that was to take place in the course of time. Yeah. Now, um, you know, maybe he would say that differently because, it, you know, playground can sound a little bit, um, I don't know, um, not as serious as it's meant to be. But what he's saying in, in this is, in, in terms of philosophy of history, God's natural revelation is the arena in which God is working out uh, election and reprobation yeah. by the proclamation of the gospel. So differentiation is differentiating the sheep from the goats in the process of history, and that that has to take place, as he says here in the playground, that has to take place within the boundaries mm-hmm. Of natural revelation. So that's why he says before the fall, God points out a tree. There's nothing specific, um, specifically different about that tree except that he says not that one. And that one then has to take its place in the background of all the other trees that were to provide life and, and, um, and, and, 
the way in which Adam and Eve were meant to operate mm-hmm. in terms of their own existence in the garden. So they're operating in the context of natural revelation and special revelation, eat from this tree, not from that one. And, and, and that's, the, that's the process of differentiation that takes place from Genesis 3 on, which is going to have its culmination at the end of time. So that's one reason why you've got natural and special so coming, it's necessarily coming It's the together. antithesis, you're saying. Exactly. Yeah. It's the antithesis, yeah. yeah. That, covenant keepers, covenant breakers. Yeah. That's exactly right. And all of that is taking place in the context of God dynamically revealing himself through everything that is created and sustained by him on a second-by-second, minute-by-minute, hour-by-hour basis. Mm -hmm. So God is actively involved in creation, revealing himself. We could say God the Holy Spirit, revealing who God is. And when people take that revelation, then they are covenantally bound to know it and use it and have it as creatures of God, to the glory of God. Mm-hmm. To the extent that you don't do that, to that extent, you're breaking covenant. You're a covenant breaker. Mm-hmm. You're in Adam. Mm-hmm. Yeah, can we um, continue this discussion and also uh, bring in a couple scriptural passages? Um, Romans 1, and also I'm thinking particularly in, in this covenant keeper in Christ, covenant breaker outside Christ context of Gaffin's work in Revelation and Reason, his chapter on 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, and um, and then the background to that passage of, um, you know, hiding things uh, from people. So you have a few things going on. You have um, knowledge, you have suppression, you have your covenantal status, and you also have um, God's activity, activity of either hiding or revealing these things. And I guess the, the question is, how do we put those things together? Which, which is a big question, but those are some of the things in the background as I'm thinking through... Um, yeah, just just how to piece this together. Yeah, um, I think one of the things, and, and again, um, you know, Van Til sees this as a as a reformed theologian. One of the things that becomes um, crucial and paramount in all this discussion is is Romans one. And Romans one, as Van Til makes clear, what happens at the fall is we now have new revelation of God that comes into his creation by virtue of the fall, and that new revelation consists primarily of God's wrath that's now revealed. And so when Paul is discussing that in Romans 1, he has in view, Romans 1.17, righteousness revealed from faith to faith. But before we understand that, we've got to see wrath revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. And, and when he begins to speak about uh, the wrath of God, he speaks about it in light of those who suppress the truth. Now, the suppression of the truth is something that Paul goes on to explain. I read an article just recently where somebody says what Paul means here is all truth, suppression of every bit of the truth. That's not what he means exegetically. I mean, there are implications of that, I think. But what Paul means, he makes clear in, one, in, in Romans 1.19, uh, that which is known about God, which he further specifies in 1.20, uh, the eternal power and divine nature, his yeah. invisible attributes. Theotes is the word, right. yeah. The eternal power and divine nature, mm-hmm. that means his godness. These things are known because we are image of God. And being image of God means that God is present and presently revealing such that he makes sure his covenant creatures know his identity and know him truly. So it's not that, you know, to put it, put it this way, it's not that we have propositions in our mind that are true propositions. There is a God. But it's that we have quorum deo, covenantal knowledge of the God who has made us and who sustains us. Now, what, now Paul's point is, and this is where Van Til is just so helpful here, because 
what what Paul is saying is that attribute of natural revelation, that is the truth of God that comes through creation, is true in the same way that his spoken word is true, and we are accountable for it in the same way that we're accountable for his spoken word. So as covenant creatures, Mm -hmm. whatever we have from God that's revelatory, which in, in, let's say, if someone is in Adam, never heard the gospel or, you know, not not uh, been exposed to that. What they have then is a knowledge of God that comes to them internally and externally, and that's covenantal knowledge for which God will hold them accountable so that, as Paul says, they are without excuse. So what happens then with that truth is Paul goes on to say that we suppress it in unrighteousness if we remain in Adam, and and that suppression looks like Paul's uh, litany of sins that he gives uh, really beginning in, in, in verse 28 there. But, but he also wants to make clear that what, what's going on uh, in Romans one thirty two what's going on is that it, this knowledge of God includes, uh, some translations call it um, God's decree. It, the word is dikaioma. It, it includes God's righteous requirements so that when God is revealing himself, he's revealing as well the obligations attached to that revelation so Paul says, uh, even though they, you know, they know the righteous requirements of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. Now, meditate on that for a day or so. <laughs> what Paul is saying is God's natural revelation is, number one, clear, perspicuous, clearly understood because revealed by God, and it includes the fact that all people, because they're image of God, recognize that their transgression of God's character is a capital offense, a cosmic capital offense that results, and they understand this, that will result in nothing but their own death. See, so people know they deserve death. I mean, if, if you watch this, you know, in thinking about this, you, you watch, um, you know, various uh, tragedies take place, the, the recent one in Colorado. What is the response of the people who are there, who, who make it? Many times their response is, I don't know why I was spared. And they're, they feel guilty. You, you talk, um, I've done this, you talk to war veterans who are fighting in battle and, and the man or person next to them is shot and killed. And what, what, what is it that, that agonized. Why? Why did? Why was I spared? See, that's that's a, that's because they recognize they don't deserve to live, and they recognize that it's the grace of God that gives them that life. And that's what Paul's saying in terms of Romans one thirty two. People recognize this, and he goes on to elaborate on that in, in in Romans two. They recognize this in terms of the law of God that it's been transgressed. Now, all of this comes by way of natural revelation, so that when you come to someone with special revelation. The gospel and the Spirit is working in his sovereign way. What clicks with them, according to the Spirit's testimony, as, it, as he, he testifies by and with the word, what clicks with them is that very thing that has burdened them can be removed from them because of what God has done. See, So now what are you doing? You're connecting the natural with the spe- You're bringing it back together. There's a coherence and an integrity now that is not, never the case in, in the way um, un, unbelievers think. And so what um, Dr. Gaffin was doing in 1 Corinthians was making the case again that, um, that, it, that, that the natural man is not able, cannot 
understand the things of the Spirit because only the Spirit of God can give us an understanding of the things of the mm-hmm. Spirit. Spiritual things, capital S, spiritual. Exactly. Yeah, spiritual, capital S, because it's the Holy Spirit is being referred to there, the things of the gospel. And that's why the gospel needs to come in and does come in, never mm-hmm. into a vacuum or an emptiness, but it comes into a context in which God is already operating and has already operated. So when, when, you're, when you're preaching the gospel, you are preaching into a context in which God has already made himself known and which people actually know him. Yep. And then the, the spirit blows where he wills. He does what he wants to do. He's like the wind. But he will testify in his sovereignty uh, to that revelation, and then it becomes either a stench of death or an aroma of life, as Paul says. That should be tremendously encouraging to apologists mm-hmm. to know that they're never – one, I mean, the working of the Holy Spirit's always encouraging, but you know, you're never working on your own. You're working as a underworker <laughs> of what the Lord is doing. But also, when you encounter somebody and you you proclaim to them the word of the Lord, um, it's it's not falling on ears that are that are incapable of hearing or putting it in context. Yeah, because the Lord has revealed Himself. And, uh, you know, everyone is always quorum Deo. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, if you, if you read, um, I mean, you know, the, the, I think the quintessential example, if you read Paul's uh, address at the Areopagus, yeah. uh, and, and think about this as, you know, as people, you know, doing evangelism or uh, something like that, how, how do we normally, you know, start? Well, it depends, <laughs> but we would only, that's another program. But what does Paul do? Paul begins with who God is. Uh-huh. Uh, the God who made everything is not does not dwell in temples made by hands as though he needed anything and he you know and he appointed one man. I mean Paul goes on to talk about who mm-hmm. God is in philosophy of history. Why? Because he knows these idols that are are in, in Athens everywhere are an expression of the suppression of the truth. They're not idols of ignorance, they're idols of culpability. They're mm. culpable for making these idols, and they're, they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. So they're saying, here's an unknown God, and, and Paul says, let me tell you what this God is like. So he gives basically a theology proper, and then on the basis of that, he says, by the way, he's coming again, this man mm-hmm. who was raised from the dead, and God is commanding you to repent. Mm-hmm. He moves directly into repentance based on what? On who God is and what he's done in Christ. Mm. So, th- so that, that's an apologetic to live by. But Paul has no time or brief for generic theism. If he had won everyone there to generic theism, he would have made no strides at all because they were already theists. And if all of them had been um, massacred that day, they would have gone the same place that a generic atheists go. Generic theists go to the same place generic atheists do. So, so there was no, um, you know, there, there's no generic theism there. But he's moving from the true God to the gospel, and that's what we need to do in apologetics. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but just on that note, there's a fun quote on page 289 where Van Til says, the addition of pure pantheism to pure deism will not bring forth theism. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Exactly, yeah. And, and, and unfortunately, that's the way it's been thought about historically. Yeah. Since you're on that point, let me, let me just say, because I've already said, you know, that this is, this is a, a difficult, in some ways a difficult essay for people who are not familiar with philosophy, but but let me just say uh, what Van Til's doing here, because he, he doesn't get the credit he deserves in this. Much of what he's doing here in his articulation of the natural theology of Plato, the natural theology of Aristotle, the natural theology of Thomas, into Kantian and, and post-Kantian thought, all Van Til is doing here is giving 
a, a very brief, admittedly very brief, history of philosophy. Mm-hmm. He's not inventing things and saying, oh, Plato was bad and oh, Aristotle. He's <laughs> saying, what he's saying is, Plato had a view. Aristotle, his student, couldn't live by it. It wouldn't work. Aristotle had a view. Mm-hmm. That didn't seem to work well. Aquinas modified that. That didn't seem to fit the bill either. So then you move into, in other words, he's giving you a, then he moves into Leibniz, the rationalist, Hume, the empiricist, Kant, trying to bring it together. All he's giving, what he's saying here, the history of philosophy has been a failure in this regard. And so this is one of the reasons, it's part of the impossibility of the contrary. If all of these from Plato to the the neo-Kantians, if they're not able to figure out how to make this uh, coherent by their own admission, because they keep redoing the net, the, the man previous, they keep redoing his philosophy. If they can't do that, how about thinking about Christianity as a way to think? And that, that really is part of what Van Til's doing here. So some people read his critiques like, oh, he doesn't understand Plato, oh, he doesn't understand Aristotle. What he's actually doing is saying what Plato was saying, and then why Aristotle would reject that, and then why Thomas tried to adapt right. it, and then why Kant or why Leibniz said that's not going to work, and then why Hume said Leibniz didn't work. He's just going through a basic kind of broad-stroke history of philosophy. So there's nothing that, that's ra- that, that is so radically new in that evaluation. Yeah. What's new is Van Til saying only Christianity and the way it thinks about revelation is going to be able to satisfy what the, all of these philosophers really want. Mm-hmm. And he studied philosophy at Princeton University. Mm. I mean, PhD, yeah. Yeah, this is not, he's no slouch. (laughs) No, no, he knows this stuff. But, you know, unfortunately, there are folks out there who think he was just a kind of Dutchman in a corner who really didn't didn't get the world. And and see, I think it's a restaurant in Lancaster County. Well, it's by the wooden shoes. I wouldn't mind going. But see, (laughs) I think Van Til gets a bad rap sometimes because he doesn't give you his processes of thinking, he gives you his conclusions. Right. And for That's those of us who yeah. can't enter his processes because yeah. we're not as bright as he is, you look at that, if you don't have patience with it, you say, oh, I don't know why he'd say something like that. Well, he knows why he'd say something like that. And if you dive right. into it, you'll, you'll understand why. But You know, starting on page 275, he, he has a second section, The Natural Theology of Greek Origin. Um, and you already mentioned, of course, Plato and Aristotle. But before we skip over those, could you maybe just touch on a little bit of that? What are, what are Van, some of Van Til's main problems with Plato and Aristotle? Yeah, well... Maybe not necessarily exactly what he's here, but 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 just in general. Uh, why, why is he so fiercely opposed to yeah. those approaches? See, I think um, one, one, way, one way I'd want to highlight that is to say, again... Um, the genius of Van Til is, is this, and, and he evaluates this in a way that not, not many had done before him. What he wants to show in, in these uh, philosophers, number one is that the, the man currently doing philosophy doesn't trust the people previous to him. He's showing that. So Plato didn't trust the pre-Socratics sure. because Heraclitus didn't get it. Everything's flux. Parmenides didn't get it. There's only being. So what do you do if you're going to talk about being, well, you have to develop some kind of uh, act potency scheme, some kind of form matter scheme. You've got to do something Mm -hmm. so that you can articulate. And so one thing he's doing is saying each philosopher rejects his predecessors and tries to move. But but the genius of what he does that no one else uh, has done in any significant way is that he shows that there's a rational, irrational dialectic that motivates all of these philosophies. 
so that um, uh, when when Plato's uh, attempting to to deal with um, knowledge itself, what does knowledge have to be for Plato? It's got to be something that's not going to change. Yeah. Why? Because the ghost of Heraclitus is there. If it changes, then you couldn't have known it. If you know it, it has to be permanent. And and so he's got the rationalist kind of Parmenidean mm-hmm. idea. So then what do you do with sense perception? Sense perception is a sort of via media. It's a kind of middle way between the knowledge, which is pure being, and non-being. And, and, and sense perception, those things that are perceived are themselves insignificant, except to the extent that they can feed the knowledge beast that is, is meant to be unchanging. And so what do you have there? You have the rational of knowledge, the irrational of sensation, and Plato has to try to deal with both of those, and, and even his student Aristotle said, didn't work. You know, you can't do this. Mm-hmm. Because you, not only do you have problems with the, the knowledge situation such that whatever form there is, you know, the ideal table, as Van Til mentions here, which is the table that doesn't exist in reality. <laughs> but then if you have that ideal table, what is it that makes that table universal? How can it be universal in and of itself if it's a particular thing, even though it's a universal? So now you've got the third man problem. Mm-hmm. You know, what is it beyond that ideal that makes it? And, 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 and on it goes. And Aristotle saw that. So what did Aristotle do? He, he wanted to bring then the forms down into the things. And so we understand universals by way of abstracting them intellectually from the mm-hmm. particulars. So now what's the problem? Well, now again, you've got a rational, irrational how do you – so what you abstract then is a universal. Yep. All right? How do you know Aquinas' uh, – this is Aquinas' example. How do you know what a knife is? Well, you have, you have different experiences of knives, and therefore you have knowledge of knifiness. But whether or not you know that knife still remains a question. You know the universal knifiness, but the particular thing yeah. can't be known as particular. It can only be known as universal. Walter Storff gets into this in his book on universals, and I think he does a nice job of laying it out. But what, what it shows is then you've got a rational. You have a rational, which is the universal knowledge, and an irrational, which is the thing out there. So again, epistemologically, see what's happening in these philosophers is it's impossible for them principially to connect the subject and the object. That's the epistemological conundrum that, 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 that happens in all of philosophy. You, you, you don't have a way adequately except by just sheer pronouncement, of connecting the subject and the that's, object. That's why Van Til says in that quote I read earlier that you can't just take a pure pantheism or, or a, you know, if we, if we want to say um, the particulars, mm-hmm. we, let, me, let me paraphrase, you can't take an absolutized version of particulars, add it to an absolutized version of the universal, and get theism out that's of right. it. That's right, yeah. Exactly, and, but that's what that's what uh, you know. Many of the philosophers have been attempting to do, yeah. realizing the problem of this dialectic, and then trying to uh, relate them to each other. Yeah, and it just never works. That's right. And see, I mean, in, in the context of everything he's talking about here, he doesn't bring this up because he thinks we we get it. But but in the context of everything he's talking about, the only way to begin to solve this problem is to see the object out there not as some sort of stagnant, simply objectified thing but to see it as God's revelation. Yeah. The same God who made us, who spoke to us, actually made and sustains the very fact out there 
mm-hmm. such that the reason we understand it is because of the activity of God involved in the whole process. Nothing else brings it together. Mm-hmm. And philosophy has been, you know, they've been toying with this for four or 5,000 years, and they still don't get it. Mm-hmm. And Van Til's saying you're not going to get it until you recognize what God's revelation is and then begin to think biblically about that revelation in creation. Can, can I make a small qualification, too? Because yeah. when I was wrestling with this uh, 10 years ago when I was taking AP 101, um, I had a question of, okay, well, what about the people who are blind, deaf, dumb? What, what's our um, doctrine of revelation? How does it affect it? And there's a quote that Van Til has. Um, he says, by the idea of revelation, then we are to mean not merely what comes to man through the facts surrounding him in his environment, but also that which comes to him by means of his own constitution as a covenant personality. Man's own psychological activity is no less revelational than the laws of physics about him. All created reality is inherently revelational of the nature and will of God. And right. just a couple points on that, that it's not how many facts you collect. We've already been discussing that. But it's also not how um, great your sense perception is either. No. So that's just, mm. you know, when, it, when I hear out there, uh, obviously I'm not saying that, I'm saying it could be in here too, and he's just making the point that your own psychological um, activity is part of that revelation, God revealing himself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Before I think it. that's right. And and even one who's blind and deaf and dumb, et cetera, is still interacting with the world, and it's God's that, world. And yeah. so the sense of touch and all these sorts of things are revelational. Of, there's a connection that God makes in mm-hmm. all of those things. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. Revelation is internal and external, and it all works together. Yeah. yeah, so it doesn't depend on our abilities, either intellectually right. or uh, perceptionally. Yeah, that's right. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that, that subject-object problem is, is so key, um, and it's been the, the issue or the subject of so much of at least Western philosophy, and Van Til uh, likes to run through things maybe a little bit too quickly at times, yeah. but, but he provides the conclusions. Right. And uh, you can trace back, and, and once you understand his system of thought, you can under, come to understand how he got there. Um, moving on just to Thomas Aquinas, we go from Plato to Aristotle to Thomas, uh, looking at page 281 here, the first indentation. Um, again, these, the, this, this pagination might not be the same for the paperback uh, version. We don't know. So uh, people at home, if you're following along, I'm on page 281, but I don't know if that's... Uh, you're going to find out if that's actually where you are. Um, Send us an email. He says, in the system of Thomas, uh, then, true knowledge demands that we hold pure univocation and pure equivocation in perfect balance with one another. Again, the one-many problem, universal particular problem. Thomas realizes we have to somehow hold univocation and equivocation. Uh, I'll let you explain that in terms of doctrine of God here in a second. But he continues, rationality must never be permitted to go off by itself and contingency must never be permitted to go off by itself. The result is a sort of pre-Kantian phenomenalism. Now, being is not becoming to form alone, nor to matter alone, but to the composite. For matter is merely in potentiality, while form is whereby a thing is, since it is act. Hence, it follows that the composite, properly speaking, is. But in terms of univocation and equivocation, can you expand on that in terms of the being of God and how we're related, how that might relate to epistemology and some of the dangers and pitfalls of of an anal- analogia entis and et cetera? Yeah. Well, one of the things Vintel's doing here, and I think this is the first place to go to begin to see how his, um, the way he uh, organizes things theologically is so much different from what Thomas has done. One of the things that he's attempting to do here is, is to say, um, first of all, on the positive, that 
uh, any kind of analogical thinking or predication has to be covenantal at its core, and that is that you you begin there um, with God's covenant relationship, that is the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And in the beginning there, you see everything that you are and do as a creature of God based on what God is doing and has done in his revelation. What what Thomas uh, wants to do by virtue of his own natural theological methodology is to posit an analogical system that is grounded, first of all, in reason alone. Yeah. So, so that the reason it's analogical, according to Thomas, is because of his notion of God and God's simplicity that he thinks he's established by reason alone. Um, and so, so analogy then is not covenantally qualified for Thomas in his natural mm-hmm. theology methodology. Then, then, so what, what Van Til says is that um, univocal for Thomas means um, it's based on the idea of a complete identification of man with God. Thomas didn't believe that, of course. And then equivocal uh, means reasoning based on the idea of the complete separation of man from God. Thomas didn't believe that either. So, so for Thomas, analogy is a midway between univocal and equivocal. Univocal, it means identical. Equivocal means n- nothing that... Um, Entirely that, different. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, nothing in common at all. And, and so what do you do? If you sort of combine those, back to the pantheism, if you combine those, then you have analogy. Um, so that when, <laughs> when we think about terms, for example, um, those terms have a particular relationship to creation mm-hmm. and then a particular relationship to God. But what is that analogy based on? That analogy is based on a, a, a rational approach to God's simplicity, not a revelational one. Now, um, that doesn't mean... Let me just qualify. Here's a parenthesis. That doesn't mean that what you say with respect to revelation uh, about God's simplicity is going to be antithetical to, contradictory to, completely other than what Thomas says. What it does mean is that your presuppositions are fundamentally different, which means there's going to be an impasse at some mm-hmm. point. Um, so let, let me let me try to use this example. Um, I hate to keep, you know, let's let's think again about the, the recent tragedy that happened in Colorado. You, you have people in that tragedy who are uh, jumping on top of other people in order to save their lives. And, um, you know, these these people, um, by, by all accounts, are, are heroes. And we would say, people would say out there, they've done a good thing. All right? We would say they've done a good thing. But then how do you begin to define that goodness? You can go along, you could write a book about what it means... You as a Christian could write a book about what it means that they did a good thing. But would you ever write a book about something like that without bringing in what the presuppositions are behind that goodness? So that there, there are at least two ways to think about it. Um, that man did a good thing by protecting his wife from, from the bullets. And the reason he did a good thing is because he's basically good or he's a combination of good. He's a person who has a mix of good and bad. Or... That man did a good thing, and the reason he did a good thing is because he's the image of God, and by God's common grace, he's not as bad as he could be, and et cetera. You move on in that direction. Now, you can go away talking about goodness, mm-hmm. but if your assumptions are fundamentally different, then they're going to, uh, they're going to cash out in terms of fundamentally different conclusions. Mm-hmm. And so I think what's happened, in, in my view, in, in some of the discussions uh, about um, natural theology and these kinds of things is that we stay on the level of a good thing. He did a good thing. Yeah, I think it's a good thing. We stay on that level, and we don't ask the question of on what basis do we pronounce that good, hmm. and what does that mean about the person 
who acted that way. See, so um, at the in, in the beginning of this book, this entire book, Stonehouse and Woolley are talking about what what's going on in the book, and, and one of the, I think Stonehouse wrote it. I'm not positive about that, but one of the things they say is that the writers of this book are intent at getting at the presuppositions behind the views that they're wanting to expound. Mm-hmm. Now that's everybody in the book. So, you know, I don't want people to think that, you know, that they're just talking about Van Til here, but this is, this is the strength of Van Til. He's, what he's saying is we, we dare not start with some sort of category. That person did a good thing. And then reason from that to what goodness is and to what kind of person this is without ever addressing the revelational component right. of what that means. See, and, th- and that's, what, that's what Thomism explicitly, by definition, does. I mean, Th- Thomas was very clear. You know, there are places where Thomas Sidden is clear, and you can, you can excerpt uh, quotes from Thomas and, and turn him into a Calvinist. And, and there, you know, there are areas there where he's completely compatible, in my view. But the, the problem with all of that is Thomas was abundantly clear that God's revelation in creation was not clear such that his existence is not self-evident to us. He says it's self-evident in itself. Okay, fine. What does that mean to us? It means it's not self-evident to us. <laughs> yeah. so, so, that what, so that what Romans 1 teaches, according to Thomas, is that, 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 that the truth that is suppressed is the light of reason. And and he and he thinks about that in terms of John one nine, you know, the, the the light that enlightens every man, and that's the light of reason, and that's one of the reasons. I, another parenthesis inside a parenthesis. That's one of the things I, I, I. That's one of the reasons I think the. It's like Inception. We're going yeah, levels, we're, levels down. In. It's turtles all the way down, or it's parentheses all the way down. But that's one of the reasons I, I think um, the exposition of Voss that I that I uh, use in in a couple of my writings on on the prologue to the Gospel of John is absolutely crucial for understanding yeah. natural revelation because Voss shows exegetically, I think. Um, uh, without question, that the light that enlightens every man is the knowledge of God. It's the same thing that Paul's talking about in Romans 1. So, so what you have uh, fundamentally in Thomas, for all of his genius, and there's plenty of it, what you have fundamentally in Thomas is a method that is conducive to paganism. And so you're not going to move in your natural theology. You're not going to be able to move to the Christian God. Yeah. The principles are different. The foundations are different. And, and the question has been, since, since the Reformation at least, the question has been, is there any way to bring together that which is known by reason alone and that which is known by revelation? And the answer has been, uniformly, no, there's no way to bring those two together. You can't have competing principia mm-hmm. in that way. Something's got to give. And what begins to give, as Muller makes clear, what begins to give in the 18th century is the revelational foundation so that reason begins to take over right into the age of the Enlightenment. That's because the, you know, the Thomistic method gets, gets in in a way that it shouldn't have. So that yeah, becomes the problem. Exactly. That's, that's, what, that's what Van Til is addressing here. This is why we call it it's a nature-grace dialectic, like the rational-irrational dialectic. You can't bring the two to, A dialectic is something you cannot bring together because there's incoherence fundamentally at root. And that's the problem in Thomistic methodology. Now, you know, I say to my class, and I've said before, it is, it is beneficial to read Thomas. I'm not, I'm not putting a black hat on him. I'm just saying he's a pre-Reformation figure. He's got a gray hat. There's some white. There's some black. 
but in terms of his methodology, it is crystal clear what he wants to do. He was, he was unambiguous about that, and he does not think it is proper or even uh, suitable for a Christian to start with revelation in, in natural theology. And that's where Van Til's taking him to task. Oh, absolutely. I mean, a lot of that comes up in his, his treatment of the Trinity. He talks about Deo Uno, Deo Trino. People yeah. that are familiar with the subject will be reminded of that. Um, there any, is there anything in terms of Leibniz or Hume anybody wants to mention before we might move to Kant? Well, yeah. no, again, I'll just, I'll just say um, uh, briefly, it's a nice illustration of, part of, of some of the uh, global problems in the history of philosophy. And the way Van Til parses it out, again, is to say mm-hmm. that even though uh, Leibniz is a rationalist, so that most people want to say, oh, he's so rational, Van Til says, no, he's rational, irrational. Because even as rational, he's got to allow for evil and then try to insert a theory that tr- that mm. deals with evil. So it's not all one big, uh, clean uh, ball of rationality. <laughs> and then and then even, even while Hume wants yeah. to be empiricist and, and seems to be utterly irrational, there's the oh. rational that creeps in in Hume's own empiricism as a reaction to the rationalist. So the genius of Van Til is he's showing, this is what he did in his dissertation, by the way, with respect to absolute idealism yeah. and pragmatism. He's showing at root they're both the same, the same and they're both rational irrational at, at, at bottom. So Leibniz's mathematical formulae are no more cogent than Hume's radical empiricism. You've got both things warring against each other. And the important point Van Til makes time and time again is these things collapse of their own weight. Van Til's point is not they disagree with Christianity, so they're wrong. That's not his point. His point is they can't sustain their own views well, what because did, their own views can't make um, sense of what they want to try to make sense of. And Yeah, and Hume, Hume's views led him to just utter skepticism, and what did he do at the end of the day? He just kind of, kind of, you know... Threw up his hands and walked home. And well, and, went, and played, went and played sports. Exactly. Yeah. He, as he himself says, he says, "I'm going to play backgammon, and my philosophy doesn't apply." But then I'll get into my study and I'll do my philosophy. So, <laughs> what do you do? You know, it's. I mean, boy, there's so much. But see, Van Til's point here is so uh, is so helpful because what he what he continues to harp on uh, in this article, but but even other places, is that as Christians, we've got to reason concretely. See, Hume had had decided the best he can do is abstraction. I'm going to talk about the empirical in my study, and I'm going to evaluate, and I'm going to come up to conclusions that say there's no necessity with respect to causal uh, contingencies and things like that, so that the ball hits the ball, the second one might move, might not, there's no necessity, but so there's no cause and effect. But then I'm going to go play backgammon. So there's nothing concrete about what Hume did. It's all in the abstracts, Mm -hmm. all in his head. That's what you have in so much of even Thomistic philosophy, you've got abstractions mm-hmm. that if they ever meet the road, that is, they ever come down to reality and what's going on right now in this world, they've got no way to make sense of it. Yeah, And, and that's what's happening in Hume, that's what's happening in Leibniz, that's what's happening in Kant. Well, and, and that comes right back around to the re- relationship of natural to general revelation. Exactly. If you come, come up with some sort of abstracted philosophy that has no way of explaining or, or understanding the things in this world. I and mean, what good is it? They, they, yeah. They've split mm-hmm. the two, yeah. and they can't make sense of reality because reality is not simply you know the immaterial. It's also the material. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just, well, some some philosophers' right. philosophy of philosophy is that that's yeah. okay. That this I'm doing a thought experiment here, right. and hopefully it'll be stepping stone to building on other things. And just to key off you, I think Van Til is frustrated. He's looking at it and saying. 
can't you see how unintelligent it is to take one of these guys as the gospel, n- mm. not in the technical sense, but mm-hmm. as just truth mm-hmm. carried out in its fullest extent? I mean, when you sweep philosophy in that way over the centuries, no way. Like, why would you put all your eggs mm-hmm. in anybody's basket or philosophy's basket? Yeah. And, and the other thing he's doing, I think, helpful for, for the church is he's trying, to, he's trying to encourage us. Again, as Christians, he's saying you've got to reason concretely in everything that you're thinking about, including about God. I'm doing uh, some work now on Common Grace and the Gospel, and he says three or four places in that work that as Reformed Christians, we have got to be fearlessly anthropomorphic or we're not going to be concrete in our understanding about God. Mm. Now, he's getting that from Bavink, but he's basically saying don't you dare – abstract God in such a way that he's not working really and truly in the context of this world covenantally, or, mm-hmm. you, or you've missed who God really, you've really missed biblical revelation at that point. Yeah, and, and back to the point of uh, autonomy, that, that this leads us into Kant, and, and you know, autonomy, of course, is very much opposed to this covenantal understanding of revelation and a revelational epistemology. But on page 288, uh, which may be the case for you or may not, <laughs> Uh, first indentation Kant's great contribution to philosophy consisted in stressing the activity of the experiencing subject Uh, it is this point to which the idea of a Copernican uh, Copernican revolution is usually applied and then uh, down to the second indentation I think the second sentence is is a Vantillian tweet if I ever saw one like a sausage grinder the mind of man forms things into molds as it receives them Oh, that's awesome! So, really, yeah, uh, I'll just let you just expand <laughs> on that. What what is what is he getting at here with this mind of man, this autonomy, and uh, this sausage grinder in action as it operates <laughs> on brute facts? I guess. Yeah. See, Kant um, Kant was was woken up by Hume, awakened from his dogmatic yeah. slumbers by Hume. What woke him up was this: Hume says that there are three kinds of propositions that are 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 available to us. There are analytic propositions such that the subject contained in the predicate. There are synthetic propositions that yeah. can be gained by sense experience, and then there are nonsense propositions. And what he, what he uh, relegates to nonsense propositions are, are anything that it cannot be had in experience itself. So that, um, so that all analytic propositions are a priori, all synthetic propositions are a priori, a posteriori, nonsense propositions are theology. I mean, he, he says, I mean, he <laughs> says if, if our books, you know, if our books contain yeah. metaphysics and divinity, let's burn them. You know, it, they really are full of nonsense. Kant's reading all that while he's studying Wolfian metaphysics, believe it or not. He's studying mm-hmm. metaphysics. He reads, he reads Hume and he says, oh my goodness, could this be true? And he begins to write the critique of pure reason to answer the question, are synthetic a priori judgments possible? Yeah. Right. Now, Hume says no, because analytic is a priori, and it can't be synthetic. And, so, and Kant is saying, wait a minute, if that's true, then Hume's right. There's no such thing as cause and effect. But Kant stands back and he says, wait a minute, I think there is such thing as cause and effect. How am I going to evaluate this? So what he does, he begins in the Critique of Pure Reason to talk about, in, in, in transcendental fashion, he begins to talk about what um, synthetic a priori would consist of. Um, I, don't, no, I don't want to get technical here, but the, the, the point he's trying to make and what Van Til is saying here is that Kant's revolution was this. If we're going to have cause and effect, Hume is right. We can't get it out there in the objective. By transcendental reasoning, the impossibility of the contrary, the only way to get it is in here. Mm-hmm. So what Kant then begins to do is develop 
um, in, in, his own, in his own way, systematically, categories of the mind that are imposed on what is otherwise a chaotic reality in order to make sense of what, what is happening in reality itself. The categories of the mind, then, are what allow for the cause and effect that we see in the world. Now what happened, this is why it's a Copernican revolution, because prior to Mm -hmm. Kant, everyone thought that the object came to the subject and the subject received and tried to make sense of. So it's from the outside in. Copernican is, it's now from the inside out. Historians or philosophers call this the turn to the subject. That's right. It, it It is a decided and radical subjective turn. And one philosopher has called it uh, creative anti-realism. Two things going on. You create your own world. It's creative. And it's anti-realism because the world you create is not something you can get your hands on. It's mm-hmm. a world of your own imagining. So that the standard critique of Kant, not mine, even though I agree with it, standard critique of Kant is that it's solipsism. The world that you create is a world of your own mind. And it plays right into the, to the postmodern agenda and, the, and things that are going on now in, in certain circles. So that's what Van Til's saying about the Copernican Revolution and then what he says, like a, when he says, like a sausage grinder, the mind of man forms things into molds as it receives them. See, we mold the world right. because the world is not something that is sensible in and of itself. It's only sensible because of the categories that we place onto it. The, the wonderful thing about Kant, and I think why he was su- he's been such a gift in so many ways is because Kant showed, and Van Til goes into this, Kant showed by virtue of his own reasoning, this is in the, the third section, third and last section of his critique of pure reason, he showed how the theistic proofs as historically formulated can't do what they claim to do. And the reason, and, and the reason they can't do what they claim to do is not because Kant has a phenomenal noumenal distinction. It's not because if you have Kant's metaphysical position, you're, there's no way you can. The reason they can't do what they do is because experience by definition, is never going to lead you to anything beyond experience. Mm-hmm. If you think of experience as some sort of or neutral human. category. Yeah. And yeah. now what are we back to? We're back to God's revelation. If, if what we have in creation is God revealing himself to us, then God is there at the beginning of the fact as the sustainer and creator of the fact. And now the experience is not just something that's out there that we're taking and trying to to do something with, but it's actually what God gives to us. See, and that makes a that makes literally a world of difference in the way that we begin to think about who God is. Mm-hmm. But but what Kant is doing, I mean, his his critique of the ontological argument, which is very um, technical, but his his conclusion is existence is not a real predicate. His his critique of that is simply you can say whatever you want to say in terms of your own mind. Let's say Anselm. Anselm, you can say whatever you want to say in terms of your own mind. So so when the fool says there is no God, he understands that God is a necessary being. He gets that, and I and Kant says I get that. <laughs> but you can't move me. Kant is saying to Anselm, you can't move me from the necessary being in your mind to the necessary being in reality simply by experience. You don't have the tools capable of doing that. Mm-hmm. So what, what he's trying – and he says, now, if I've critiqued existence itself by, by um, a fortiori, it's going to apply to all the other theistic proofs. I mean, it has to because they presuppose existence. So his critique of the ontological argument entails his critique of the other arguments. And I think the gift of Kant is he's exactly right. That's why Van Til appreciates what Kant and Hume both did because they showed if you're going to be consistent 
with your presuppositions with respect to the neutrality of that which is out there, you're going to be consistent in that. You're never going to be able to get to the infinite personal God, His Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You're just not going to be able to get there. The only way to get there is to start there. Mm-hmm. So that's Van Til's point. By faith, not by sight, is by faith, not by empiricism. Almost. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Or uh, by faith, not by reason alone, or by faith. Right. You know, it's just right. pick your philosophy. Um, are there any other things we need to address? I mean, I'm looking at the last paragraph. I don't want to get there too quickly if there's something else that we should address. Or, or I, I suppose we can – well, the, the last paragraph says, and I can give it back to you to uh, to comment on and maybe apply this in any other direction you'd like. But um, he says there right at the end, on the other hand, the natural theology of the confession with its rejection of autonomous reason – has restored reason to its rightful place and validated its rightful claims. In recognizing the sovereign God of grace, the God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, where did he, what did he do with the holiness? That's what gets me. He threw the holiness out. <laughs> being wisdom, power, goodness, justice, and truth, as its chief and ultimate principle of interpretation, the natural theology of the confession has saved rationality itself without the self-contained God of the confession. We should, we would rightly say, without the self-contained God of Scripture, there would be no order in nature and no employment for reason. Yeah, that's just wonderful. Uh, you know, he's he, he's trying. He's already tried to give the high points of the, some of the key figures that have wanted to bring natural and special revelation right. together. And what he's shown is, if you try to do that without giving account of natural revelation by virtue of special, not natural revelation on its own or getting mm-hmm. to natural revelation, but natural revelation by virtue of special revelation, if you're going to try to do that in some independent way, it's going to inevitably lead you to the next philosopher who's going to show how fallible your system is. The only way to begin to save rationality itself and the empirical and natural theology is to see it as built on God's special revelation. God Mm -hmm. speaks, and it was, and then what is has its definition by virtue of what he said. And and unless you have it that way, you're not going to get up to what he said. You're not going to move up to what he said unless you start with what he said. And and the whole scope of of the essay is to show how that's the case in Plato, in Aristotle, in Thomas, in Leibniz, in Hume, in Kant, and then in Bart and in Bruner. And what he says, you know, this, I mean, the, the material on Bart and Bruner, again, is, you know, he's trying to be concise here, but he has this great line. Um, let's see if I can find it. Dialectical theology has, to be sure, made the attempt to combine the main critique of Kant and the institutes of Calvin. Yep. But the magnitude of its undertaking is itself the best insurance instance in proof that such a thing cannot logically be done. <laughs> so, so he's saying, what, you know, what, did, what did Bart do, for example? What Bart did was you take the structure of Kant, the phenomenal noumenal, and then how are you going to make sense of revelation? The only way to make sense of revelation is to bring the phenomenal up into the noumenal and to combine the two so that revelation for Bart is a necessary aspect of God's character, specifically revelation in Christ, is who God is essentially. He must necessarily be that, see? Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden what happens? The the phenomenal is the noumenal, but then what does that mean in a Christian context? God is only 
in Christ. Mm-hmm. So, so the, the actuality of the incarnation is essential to the Godhead in Bart. And that's why uh, Van Til says this, this is the best you can do if you're going to start with neutrality. You know, you've got a Bartian theology there. And that's why I think you've got people, you know, even evangelicals who are enamored with Bart because they, they don't start with this uh, mutual presupposing of natural and special revelation. Mm-hmm. They start with some kind of neutrality and say, how are we going to make sense of this? Well, Bart's done it for us because he's, he's fully Christological. Well, no, he isn't. He's fully Christomonistic. He's only Christological. Yeah, well, and in the Christ <laughs> and, that, that, yeah. he, that he posits, yeah. it's not the Christ of Scripture. No, no. It's, not, it's not the Son of God who took on you. It's, it's the Son of God who is necessarily incarnate. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Van Til was right on this. That's heretical. It just is heretical. You can't say that about Christ. So, you know, he's trying to show how even, even some of the more prolific theologians who are, who are making headway during this time in the 1940s and now resurrected, uh, they're not able to deal with natural and special revelation properly because they don't begin with the ontological trinity. Bart, Bart thought he was starting there. I mean, he was the one who was saying, we've got to stop this essentialist language and begin with Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Yeah. Okay, how do we do that, Bart? Well, Jesus is necessarily who he is. There's no, there's no free voluntary condescension when it comes to the Son of God. Mm-hmm. He is necessarily. That's what you've got when you don't start with biblical revelation as God's word and as necessarily trustworthy. And Bart doesn't start with that, so he's going to end up with heretical views. Right. The, um, you can read many of those critiques in the New Modernism. On, uh, if you want to read more about Bart and Brunner, even Heidegger, uh, you can pick up the New Modernism, but also uh, Christianity and Bartianism for more of, of Van Til's discussion on Bart. Now, I noticed another a book in front of you. Can you, Are you at liberty to speak about your project at all yeah, um, for um, people that might be interested? Yeah, I'm, I'm working on um, Common Grace in the Gospel. I'm going to uh, hopefully write, um, by the time I'm finished, an introduction to it and then provide uh, some explanatory notes along the way to, yeah. try to try to explain. I think it's one of the most important things Van Til wrote. It's a compilation of different essays that he wrote. And I, I think, I think, I haven't checked this out, um, so it's not definitive, but I'm pretty sure the last chapter in that book is the last thing he wrote for publication. Oh. Um, not because he was near death, but because he just didn't publish anything after that. And, mm-hmm. and so I think that's the last thing he wrote for publication. He was asked to write it as the mm-hmm. essays were brought together. And I think there's, there are some fundamental misunderstandings of, of common grace out there. And so hopefully this will be a helpful way to try to bring some of those. Yeah, it's, it's very much related to what we've been talking about already, but uh, just the whole discussion about relationship between the church and the state and then, and the, the church and culture we've, we've been talking before about Kuyperianism and Neo-Kuyperianism. You have and a book also, in front of you. Yeah. And also, also two kingdom theology. I've been reading David Van Drunen's book, natural law and the two kingdoms. So he, he has a chapter in here on Van Til and he has a, a lot of references to common grace. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I think, I think it's warranted. I'm glad PNR got is, is, been amenable to the project and that that yeah it only took them about seven years (laughs) i wasn't gonna say anything no i don't mind saying that it took seven years but at least it's now you know we're underway and we're moving so i'm I'm looking i'm looking forward it's timely maybe it is yeah yeah. Yeah, i mean providentially worked out great and i I really am excited to do it because i think it's one of those areas of until that people have not read as much and maybe there's some misunderstanding about what common grace is yeah, and 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 he has a. It's it's so operative in his in his system yeah. as, as a bridge between Warfield and Kuiper. That's right. You know, so it's it's important that we uh, that we understand that. And oddly enough, that particular volume has been kind of hard to come by. 
uh, in its current state, it's it's a little mm-hmm. strange. Uh, yeah, I think yeah. there's still that '70s ish yeah, type true. of printing that's <laughs> yeah. still around. But and I, I really am, um, you know, all kidding. I'm I'm thrilled that PNR is going to republish this yeah. and have it in a brand new. You know, it's yeah, going to fit with probably the look other, like other the others. Are, Christian yeah, apologetics, like the others and, defense of the faith, intro yeah, to systematic. I hope know. it'll get people reading on it because yeah. it it is crucial material that uh, yeah. that's been ignored. Great. Any concluding remarks or anything? Uh, <laughs> I don't want to cut us off. I mean, you 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 want to comment? You were very uh, keen on making sure you got a full hour forty, like James Dolezal. <laughs> so, Equal I think uh, we've we've been in the room for more than an hour forty. I don't know how much you'll make it to tape, but uh, yeah, no, I I mean, I, you know, <laughs> I guess I just um, just just to reiterate what I've said. I think I think number one, it's important to see that what Van Til is doing here is fleshing out the theology of the confession. Yeah because he can, he's a confessional theologian, as am I, and we, we in this room. And I think it's also important to see how inextricable these two things have to be uh-huh. if you're going to avoid, avoid the errors of the history that he gives here. And I, I, I just think, um, you know, I, I don't want to be too broad and sweeping here, but I think those errors are not being avoided today, uh-huh. and, and it's going to wreak havoc. It can wreak havoc on the church if we don't get back to this fundamental principle that Van Til's articulating here, really all the authors in this book, but especially with the relationship to the natural and special. If we, if we don't see this and get it embedded into our souls, then um, I, I fear for uh, much of, uh, of the church in that regard. I think we've got to be very careful. Yeah, and I, I do echo the, those concerns, and uh, it's very important to get our prolegomena correct, and that's that's why here at seminary, um, ST101, the first class you're supposed to really take, uh, it's important. I think Vern Poitras one time um, put it this way, sometimes it's it gets a little frustrating for seminarians to kind of go over some of this really basic stuff where they come fired up, they want to talk about the current debates and all this stuff. But you can't really have a, a, a nice house to live in unless you go downstairs and put the heater in, you know, the duct work. You know, this stuff isn't maybe fun on its own. But uh, without it, if you don't get those things right, those those foundational items, then you're just going to go all over the place. And so um, I think I think uh, extra effort put into our study of prolegomena can save us, uh, who knows, can save us from so many errors down the road. The other thing I wondered, just I'll, I'll stop with this. <laughs> Just as I was looking at this book, it just made me wonder, um, is there a group now who could write a book like this? Yeah. Um, and, and I mean that in terms of systematic theologians, which is sort of on the wane. People are saying systematic theology, bad, bad. Um, <laughs> but biblical yeah. theologians as well. Are, are there a group of people who could start with Murray – on the self-attestation of Scripture, yes, and then in terms of biblical studies and systematic theology, affirm that all the way through in their own disciplines. And I think it's very few people who are able to do that now, and I think that is a tragedy. I it think is. that's got to change. I was speaking with Lane Tipton a couple of weeks ago about the unique gifts of E.J. Young. I don't want to single him out or put him on some pedestal, although he certainly deserves it in many rights. And, and you know, But... Um, you know where are the EJ Youngs? We were yeah. just asking where are they? Yeah. And, you know, just the, the, and, and you know we could also think about minds, apologetic minds, and systematic minds. And the Lord gifted those men. Um, I mean, it's easy for us to say, you know, being here and you know on the campus, but but right. it was a, a unique time in church history and that early generation uh, coming out of the 
the Presbyterian conflict. Yeah, um, it's and see, strange. See, if if Mueller is right, if if it's the epistemological point that is the is the revolution in, in the Reformation, if he's right about that, that has not changed um, today. So that whatever has changed in systematics and whatever has changed in biblical studies, that epistemological point has to ground and found everything that we believe and teach. And if it doesn't ground and found that, mm-hmm. then we've changed our foundation, and then there's trouble. And that's what we got to get back to, is that yeah. sola scriptura, epistemological, bringing together natural and special so that any discipline we're involved in, systematics yeah. or biblical studies, has to have that epistemological foundation or it's being done improperly. Yeah. I uh, think we ought to wrap things up. I have another scheduled interview in 14 minutes. <laughs> I should also say, just to also wrap yeah. it up, um, I, it's my fault that uh, Philosophy for Theologians has not had an, oh, enough what? episodes. Um, partially my fault, at least. So I'm, I'm going to try to be intent on that. I know we say that every time we do one, but <laughs> hopefully we'll get a few more out there just to kind of continue this conversation that we're having yeah. on the relationship between all these things that we've been discussing. So Yeah, people are definitely interested. I think it's important, um, and, and these are just key key things we need to need to go through so thanks for that and for your efforts uh i do just uh as we as we close i want to say personally as the president of reform forum thanks to westminster theological seminary again our relationship and it's not going to change in terms of who we talk to and the and the the truths of the faith that we hold so dear but um being that this is the last day we're really going to do any recording in the studio i want to say thanks because they really helped us give they gave us a leg up on and giving us a place because i was doing this out of my apartment and just wasn't working. <laughs> so, uh, no, but the refreshments were better. <laughs> <laughs> I had a coffee pot. It's yeah. Been great, um, man. Uh, but, uh, yeah. So, um, as we transition, I just uh, publicly want to say thank you, uh, to everyone that's been a big support and also to all the listeners as well. We've got a bunch of great things coming down the road. Uh, visit us online at reformedforum.org as well as visiting Westminster at wts.edu. But on our website, you can find information about all of our programs, things that we're up to, as well as news. You can subscribe to our, our newsletter. We try to put uh, some information out every month. And you can subscribe to all the programs. Get them downloaded to your computer automatically uh, for free at reformedforum.org. We want to thank everybody for listening, and we hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center. <laughs>